You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. If you haven't been here, we're continuing our sermon series on Sermon on the Mount. If you recall, Jesus took uh, the people to a mount or hillside area where he preached the greatest sermon ever told. We are just about the midpoint of this sermon, so let's recap and set the stage. The Sermon on the Mount encompasses three chapters of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In chapter 5, we have considered the so-called Beatitudes, which is where Jesus begins with, blessed are. Then we, he, he gets into his sayings about salt and light and his interpretation of the law. His interpretation of the law goes deep into the law. He elevates the commandments from its original form and draws out the spiritual aspects. This part makes any religious person a bit nervous. Every man will proclaim his own goodness. And if you go into the streets and ask, the general idea is, yeah, I'm a good person. I make a few mistakes, but I'm only human. Let's consider what Jesus said and take the test for humanity. Commandment six, you shall not murder. Jesus said, if you, so, if you shall hate your brother, you are in danger of judgment. And let me ask, has anyone here committed murder? On second thought, if you have, you should probably keep your hand down. The next one. Commandment seven, you shall not commit adultery. Once again, there might be a sigh of relief. Great, I haven't committed adultery. But Jesus said, if you, if you shall look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Commandment nine, you shall not lie. Jesus' standard is that you should be so honest, you should never break out into vowing. Your yes should be yes and your no, no. The elevation of the law is heavy and has a very definite purpose. You may be asking, what is the purpose? To make me feel guilty? Yes, Romans 3, 19 states, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. You see, my friend, we will never seek God as Savior before we see ourselves as transgressors to his law. When we see ourselves as God sees us guilty, we can begin to look to him for salvation. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans 6.23 All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 But as you have heard, there is a gift. The gift of eternal life can be extended to sinners. Are you a sinner? Christ died for sinners. To the self-righteous, well, they are offended, and they're going to look to themselves on judgment day. I'm here to tell you that won't work. There is a perfect God to face. And James tells us that if we break one law, we're guilty of all the law. James 2.10. In fact, Jesus states himself that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter. And that's part of the Sermon on the Mount as well. Matthew 5.20. So what's the solution? How can we obtain the gift that God freely gives eternal life? Romans 10.9 and 10, which... I didn't plan for this, but you already stated it, Ovi. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That, my friend, is the good news. It's good news for Muslims and Buddhists, Hindus and atheists. God's call to salvation is exclusive because there's only one name under heaven by which we must be saved. Yet it is inclusive because the call goes out into all the world. If you are hearing this for the first time, I'm pleading with you to take this message seriously. The message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. For reference, see 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. At this point, you might find yourself asking, Flo, what does this have to do with our text today? Well, let's finish the recap. After Jesus elevates the law, he takes up topics, and this is chapter 6, such as religious hypocrisy in regard to doing things before men to be seen of men. For example, do you do charitable deeds to be praised by men or rewarded by God? Do you sound a trumpet before you pray or give? Do you fast to be admired by others? In all these instances, Jesus explains, when you do these things, there's something at stake. And believe it or not, rewards or treasures are at stake. Starting at the end of chapter 5, up to this point, the word reward is used eight times. It is the connecting theme of chapter 6. Furthermore, the text for today highlights the reality that we as believers have a choice in the way we store up treasure. That being said, I've decided to give you the three points for the sermon up front. Two treasures, two visions, two masters. It can be broken down. And you can summarize the points by asking what you got, where you looking, who you serving. At this point, we have recapped the previous material and set the stage for today's sermon. But before we get into the text, I'd like to pray. So if you could bow your heads. Heavenly Father, this text is so meaningful. I pray this morning that you would use your word by your spirit to reveal your son. I pray you would reveal his wisdom and love for us. Not only would he die for our sins and pay our debt, but afterward would call us to service where we can in a real way obtain eternal reward and heavenly treasure. I pray that you would make this real to us today. That you would remind us to keep our eye on you and to serve only you. If we have strayed from this path, I pray you would set us right again, O Lord. Thank you for everyone that has decided to be here this morning to hear your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We find ourselves in Matthew 6, 19 to 24, as you can see, it's projected up there. So if you could open your Bibles, or we'll have the text projected to you uh, eventually up on the TVs. I'll begin to read. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now that we are setting our attention to the text, and specifically I'd like to break it down 
uh, portion by portion, I'd like to begin by asking, have you ever heard a sermon on Christian rewards or treasure? Well, after today, you can say you have, and believe it or not, it can change your walk with Christ. That's because certain doctrines or teachings that are accepted as truth and integrated in your life can change your uh, life and impact it in ways unimaginable. I'd like to start off by giving you a few examples of such life-changing doctrines. First doctrine, the Bible teaches indwelling sin. That is, that sin dwells in our flesh. The seventh chapter of Romans is the Apostle Paul struggling with the new nature and the old nature. He makes the statement in verse 17 to 18, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. This reality is not only stated in Romans, but much of the Old Testament highlights the reality that humanity has sin, and our default is to give into sin that is in our flesh. If you want more proof, just read the book of Judges. It is a constant pattern of God blessing Israel, Israel backsliding from God, God bringing judgment, and then the people repent and God gives freedom from the judgment. And the pattern repeats over and over again. It is also a self-evident reality, this indwelling sin, because all we have to do to prove it is just to look outside the window or turn on the news. How can this doctrine transform us? It simply humbles the human heart. It will take us from a proud boaster to a humble beggar. If believed, it will equalize humanity before God and drive us to the mercy of the Savior. Consider how Paul concludes Romans 7.24. O wretched man that I am. Next, have you considered how the attributes of God are awe-inspiring and provoke a holy fear into man? Consider that God is omnipresent. The eye of the Lord is in every place. Nothing escapes his view. He is omnipotent. By his all-powerful hand, he fashioned the entire universe from the largest galaxy, the vastness of space, to the atom and molecules that hold up our structure. He has even written his name in our DNA. And ask about that afterwards for more information. God is eternal. He is from everlasting to everlasting. Million, uh, he is the greatest writer. He's the best at everything. By weaving together millions of stories and taking our sin and rewriting it for good, he is the greatest warrior. By battling with death and Hades itself and giving a finishing blow to death by his death, then rising from the grave, as Spurgeon put it, and this is a paraphrase, life is in the blood, and when God shed his blood, the grave drank life. It was as death vomited Christ out because his life was stronger than death. We serve a warrior king who will one day have all his enemies made his footstool. Does that inspire awe? I could go on and on about all-powerful life-altering doctrines, but I'll stop here only to say that today we are entering a life-altering doctrine, the reality of eternal treasure and reward given to us by none other than the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's consider the choice that Jesus gives. Verse 19. 
Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. We'll just stop here. This is the first choice Jesus gives. This follows the same pattern. In chapter 6, where Jesus gives us the first choice that is rooted in this world. Treasures on earth in this context is material possessions or money. This is so contrary to what the world tells us. In the West, we have been bombarded with consumerism, the rat race, keeping up with the Joneses, and the corporate ladder climb. Let's take a brief look at the consequences of rejecting Jesus' viewpoint on treasure. Consumerism is the preoccupation of society with the acquisition of consumer goods. This is a sad reality for millions of people in the West willing to sacrifice more time, more energy, to purchase more and more things. From a young age, we are taught the importance of getting more toys, and the more toys we have, the more dissatisfied we are. Th this idea is ingrained to us and, just, and is just as prevalent in, uh, in adults. This leads to the next symptom, the rat race, which is a way of life in which people are caught up in a fiercely competitive struggle for wealth and power, but getting nowhere. Imagine being a rat in a cage on a hamster wheel going in circles, faster and faster. Some people call this the grind and actually brag about it. They say, getting my grind on. This saying might be a little outdated. But think about the bleak reality of living life and calling it a grind. Grinding your days away so perhaps one day you can have that thing that will finally make you happy. Next is climbing the corporate ladder. This is the idea of advancing in a company from the bottom to the top. Ambition is a good thing, but this often leads people to do things that are sinful. This self-centered climb will cause you to step over others in its pursuit and sacrifice your family, friends, social life, or church life for this goal. Lastly, the world is trying to keep up with the Joneses. This idiom refers to the comparison to one's neighbors as a benchmark for social class or accumulation of material goods. The Bible simply calls this covetousness. The evil eye, which we'll talk about, uh, looks over to the neighbor's house and sees they have a new car. So what do you want? A new car. These are some symptoms of storing up treasure on earth. But what are the results in the end? Jesus said the results of storing up treasure on earth is the inevitable destruction or plundering of your goods, where moth and rust destroy. Have you ever thought about that for a moment? No matter what we find valuable and store here can be destroyed. What does moth destroy? Garments, clothing. Fine clothing in Jesus' time was a hot commodity. Most people had two changes of clothing, work clothes and free clothes. So to value extravagant clothing was not un uncommon in that day. Not much has changed because even today, uh, we might have more clothes, but expensive brand name clothes are still in style. Thousands of dollars for a pair of pants? This just seems ridiculous to me, but other people find value in these things. But what happens even if you were to obtain these things, thousand dollar pants? More than likely, you would do all you could to preserve them and put them in airtight boxes, only wear them on very special occasions. Storing up clothing on this earth is futile. 
Furthermore, Jesus talks about rust. The thing that rusts is precious metals. Coins and money can also rust or degrade. Things that shine will fade, or simply, the things we once value become depreciated. When we get a brand new car, it's shiny, and it has an effect on our happiness. But as soon as you drive it out of the dealership, you scratch it. Then you have to go through so much effort in protecting it, insuring it, cleaning it, and the list goes on. But don't worry, next year a new model car will come out and the car you have will just lose its value. Next, Jesus said, if time doesn't destroy your treasure, then maybe thieves will come in and steal. Did it ever occur to you that, the co that covetousness and stealing go hand in hand? When there is covetousness in the heart, the mind thinks up schemes to satisfy that desire. Thieves were a big problem in that day. Oftentimes, travelers were ambushed on the road and have their goods taken from them by force. The example Jesus gives is of thieves breaking into a house. The unsuspecting victim could wake up to their treasures plundered. Then what was all that work for? Let me ask you, would this scenario break you if someone came in and stole your goods? Well, you don't have to imagine because this still occurs in our world today. Thieves break in and steal every day. If they don't steal your physical treasure, then they are good at stealing from you virtually. Thieves today have only become more sophisticated in their crime by hacking bank accounts or can even steal your identity. As a side note, have you ever noticed the legal stealing? I'm, of course, referring to taxes. I looked it up. There are 12 different taxes, and the list can go on. Individual income tax, corporate income tax, payroll tax, capital gains tax, sales tax, property tax, estate tax, wealth tax, and the list goes on. Seems like the government is hard at work coming up with new ways to legally steal from people. I don't want to get in trouble for that. These are grim reminders of the reality we live in. But the final reality of storing up treasure in this life is you can't take it with you. The old saying, you can't take a U-Haul with you to your grave, or you don't see a U-Haul behind you as you're buried. It's so true. You come into this world with nothing, and you leave with nothing. There's an old story, there's an old story of a rich man who died, and uh, his children were gathered around him, and they asked the lawyer, who was responsible for the will, they asked, well, how much did he leave? Referring to the dollar amount, they wanted to know, oh, how, how much am I going to get? And the lawyer said he left it all. And that's so true. When we die, we leave it all. Does this remind you of another teaching of Jesus? And I'm, of course, referring to Luke 12, 16. And I'll, I'll read the text. This is Jesus speaking and teaching about the same topic. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store up my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So how does this option sound for everyone? This is option one, storing treasure on earth. 
let's consider what Jesus said is the better option. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Let's consider some of the qualities of this treasure. Remember how earthly treasure rusts and decays? Well, this treasure is eternal. It will never degrade. You will be able to enjoy it again and again. Remember how earthly treasure is subject to be stolen? Consider where it is kept. It is in heaven for you. The nature of heaven is there is no sin. There, there we will be free from the covetous eyes and stealing hands. No one will cheat you out of it. There's another contrast we can look at. You will be eternal. You will never die. You will never leave it for someone else to inherit. It will be yours because you receive that reward from your Father who is in heaven. So let's summarize. The treasure is eternal, secure, and belongs to a being who is also eternal and secure. Consider the implications of heavenly treasure. What do you think the effect on a believer is when they learn about this doctrine? First, it has a motivating effect on the Christian. The Christian that has their eye on eternity will go through the hardships and temptations of this life differently than the one who has their focus on the world. They will be motivated to serve the master to hear that well done, good and faithful servant from Jesus when they meet him. They will choose to suffer with Christ in this world rather than enjoy the pleasures the world offers. We know that even if all worldly goods are taken away from us, no one can take our reward. Take example of Moses in Hebrews eleven twenty-five to 26. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. You might be saying to yourself, it takes great faith to give up what we see with our eyes for something we have never seen. What if I told you this was a prerequisite to please God? Hebrews 11.6, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder to those that diligently seek him. Knowing that God is the greatest at everything, as we talked about earlier, how great do you think his treasure shall be. Paul tells us, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the mind, into the heart of man, the things God has prepared for those who love him. May I say to you, friend, if you choose, if you had to choose between this world and what God has behind door number two, choose God. Heavenly treasure can also be an interpretive tool in rightly dividing the word of God. Have you ever thought of that? For example, we know from scripture that believers must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The word judgment seat in Greek is bematos or bima, the bima seat. This term used in the Olympic Games. When the games are over, the winner of the group would be rewarded with a wreath crown. Have you ever seen that? Like the Caesars? 
This was known, this, uh, there was two words in Greek for crowns. Stephanos, the first one, is a crown that you have achieved, which differs from the second Greek word for crown, diadem, which is a crown for position or authority that was inherited for being royal. So how does this judgment apply to us as believers? 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, the foundation is Christ, by the way, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on, on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Let's break it down. All believers, all believers will appear before Christ to be judged for the works we have done here, whether good, gold, silver, precious stones, or bad, wood, hay, straw. The examples for good and bad works are given in the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus. When you do good works to be seen of men, you have built with wood, hay, and straw. When you do your works in secret to bring praise to your Father which is in heaven, you have built with gold, silver, and precious stones. Our works are gathered up. They're placed into a furnace, which could be a literal furnace, or possibly it could be symbolic of judgment. Fire is often associated with judgment. They will be tested. Gold, silver, and precious stones are not consumed by fire and endure the fire. And therefore, a reward is given to anything that endures the test, while wood, hay, and straw is consumed. It's also important to note that a believer's sin does not enter into judgment. Our sin was paid for by the blood of Jesus at the cross. For all those that have believed in the gospel, their sins are totally removed and will not appear. Secondly, it is important to note that this judgment is specifically for believers. Rewards are available exclusively to Christians. Non-believers may try as they might, but their good works will remain, as Isaiah said, filthy rags. For example, my daughter, Sarah's, has, will have an opportunity for reward if she gets good grades in school. The boy from across the street might have better grades than Sarah's, but he's not eligible for my reward because he's not my child. Whether Sarah's does good or bad, only she will be eligible for reward. That being said, the world believes they will get into heaven because of their good works. If they believe in a God, they believe... He works like a great scale in the sky. Have you ever heard of this? Where on one end is your good works and on, on the other end is your sin. And they're balanced. If your good work outweighs your sin, then you go to heaven. This is fundamentally rejected by Jesus and the rest of scripture. Scripture teaches that God is holy and he cannot turn a blind eye to sin. He cannot be bought with good works. In fact, if the scale in the sky were true, then why did Jesus have to die on the cross in the first place? My friends, Jesus addresses the two problems with humanity. He lived the perfect life we could never live, therefore obtaining our righteousness. Then he died to death or paid the penalty we should have paid so we can be forgiven. When we put our faith in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, 
He gives you his righteousness. This might, find, this might sound foolish to the world, but the Bible calls it the wisdom of God. Lastly, what happens to non-believers at their judgment? Very briefly, believers are judged first. Then after a period of time, non-believers will be resurrected in a physical body to stand before God at the great white throne judgment. They will have their day in court. All who have rejected the advocate or the lawyer will be able to present their good works to God, but the result is very clear. Any that have rejected God's offer of salvation will be found guilty and be eternally separated. If this piques your interest or you want some more detail, Revelation 20 is a good place to read about it. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's think about this for a moment. Where my heart finds its treasure will dictate my actions. My actions prove where my treasure is, is at, and the heart follows. If my treasure is in money, my affection and actions will follow. It may cause me to lie, cheat, steal my way to the top to obtain that earthly treasure that my heart wants. Kind of like taking a shortcut to the goal. But if my treasure is in heaven, my heart will be heavenly minded and my body will follow. Before we move on to the next portion of the text, consider the crowns and how the heart is reflected in the treasures or in the crowns. The crown of righteousness given to all those who love the Lord's appearing. Are you living with a daily longing for Christ's return to set up his kingdom on earth? Is it a reality in your mind and heart or are you too set on the cares of this world? The crown of life given to all those that endure trial. Does your heart buckle under pressure? Would you be willing to endure the testing of your faith even if it meant being put to death? All that endure trials will receive the crown of life. The crown of rejoicing. This is also referred to as the soul winner's crown. We should, be, we should already be motivated to tell others about the good news. But for every soul that gets saved by your faithful efforts, there is a crown waiting for you. The crown of glory. This is to all faithful pastors and shepherds. If you have a heart for discipleship, then there is a crown for your faithfulness. Lastly, the incorruptible crown. This is a crown for Christian self-discipline. There is a reward for the, for the faithfulness of believers that bring their bodies into subjection to Christ. There, might, there may be some that are raising an objection, the cynics. Some will conclude that rewards would cause Christians to become selfish and um, or thinking they, should, they are only serving Christ for re, uh, not for reward, but for love. If that's going through your mind, I wholeheartedly ask that you would reject this thought. God finds pleasure in rewarding those he loves, just like an earthly father finds pleasure in rewarding their children. The promise of rewards are reassuring to those that struggle with persecution because the father promises that he will repay everyone for eternity. Matthew 5, 11 to 12, also part of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
He sees all the injustice in this world, and he sees your faithfulness and sacrifice when you thought no one was looking. Just as the stars differ from one another in brightness, so shall believers differ from one another in glory. Some will achieve more for the kingdom than others. Christians from different ages, races, and backgrounds will be acknowledged, and the Father does all that he pleases. If it did not please God, he would have told us. But since he has told us, let, us, let it motivate us to run this race and bring God the glory. In the end, our rewards may just be a way to worship Christ to a greater degree. Just as the 24 elders in Revelation 4 and 5 cast their crowns before the Lord, we may have the privilege of doing so as well. How thrilling would that day be if we have many crowns to cast before him? And how tragic would it be if your works were all burned up with nothing to offer the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? The final objection comes from prosperity preachers that teach the opposite. They teach you can have uh, prosperity and financial blessing now. Where does this come from? The old covenant, and this is where they kind of twist it, was made with the nation of Israel, which, which did, in fact, provide an earthly reward. And that is very true. Prosperity. It was a type of contract between two parties, God and the nation of Israel. The terms were simple. If Israel kept the whole law as a nation, then God would bless them. If Israel failed to keep the covenant as a nation, then God would curse them. We must remember that God is faithful, so he keeps both blessing and cursing. We must remember that God, I'm sorry, there was a time where Israel was blessed, but as the blessing came year after year, they forgot about God and his law, and they turned to idols. I don't know about you, but I'm glad we no longer have this type of conditional covenant. The new covenant was made on the merits of Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross. Believers are blessed with all spiritual blessing in heavenly places currently, today, which includes love, joy, and a peace that surpasses all understanding. It seems fitting that if our now, our earthly rewards are spiritual, then our heavenly rewards will be tangible or physical. So don't let these so-called preachers fool you into giving money to their program with promises to become rich now. Because, friends, the only people that are getting rich now are those preachers that are taking your money. Keep your vision on Jesus, not on money. Two visions. Speaking of keeping your eyes on Jesus, let's look at verse 22 and consider the next portion, two visions. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The eyes are also called by Jesus the windows to the soul. They are the windows your life looks out of. Now, the thing that gives, gives light to the body um, so it can move safely is the eye. Furthermore, the King James translate this to a good eye, um, as a good eye to be single, your good eye or your single eye. If thy eye be single, that is focused, which is in contrast with the evil eye in the next section, um, which is looking back and forth. 
Next, Jesus said, if your eye is good or single, the body will be full of light. The Bible may be able to give us some insight on the light Jesus is referring to because scripture interprets scripture. John 1, 3 through 9. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of that light, that through that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of the light that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Although the sun gives physical light to the world, according to scripture, Jesus is the actual light that lights our life. The light of Christ, the scripture, keeps us from deception. He guides our path in ways of righteousness. Imagine for a moment a world without scripture to guide your life. What would that look like? Well, it would be groping in the dark. One of the qualities of being in complete darkness is not knowing where you are or potential dangers that are all around you. That is the reality for all non-believers. They don't know who they are, where they come from, or where they are going. They are lost. The result is filling their time on earth with two ways. Either pleasing a deity they have created in their own mind, idolatry, or pleasing their own lust because tomorrow they die. Those who have a healthy eye have light that lights their path so they know who they are, where they come from, and where they are going. They have their priorities straight and can serve the creator. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. This light serves us in life, and when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that dark place, we will fear no evil, for he will be with us. Then Jesus makes a parallel statement. This is the negative side. But if your eye is evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. Jesus' hearers would have perhaps understood what he was referring to, Proverbs 28, 22, which says, A man with an evil eye hastens after riches and does not consider that poverty will come upon him. This is the opposite of a single eye. This is the eye that looks, like I said, back and forth in a covetous way. He looks at his neighbor's goods, as we talked about, and desires them. As I've stated before, when our focus is not above, it will fall below to the treasures of this world. Jesus concludes by saying that if our eyes that should give light to our bodies only give darkness, how great is that darkness? Our flesh desires after the things of this world by default. John 3, 19 to 20. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. So I'll ask you, how great is the darkness in men when their flesh loves darkness, their deeds are evil, and their eyes cannot see. And may I say to you this morning, friend, this is a scary picture. Lastly, we know that Satan uses this to his advantage by blinding people and keeping them blind. 2 Corinthians 
4.4, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. That's right. Satan's primary scheme for today is blinding the minds of people so they would remain in darkness and they would not see the gospel that gives light. In summary, if your eyes, your eyes have a direct connection to your heart, you have two choices. Look to Christ and walk in righteousness or look away from the light and live in sin and darkness. Who are you looking at today? Final portion. Let's turn our attention to the final portion of the verse, of our text, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. This verse is very simple to read and understand. However, it's helpful to define the word mammon. Mammon is wealth regarded as an evil influence or false object of worship and devotion. Have you ever thought that pursuing money, so in short, mammon can be summarized as money. Have you ever thought that pursuing money can have elements of worship and devotion? Consider a few parallels with God. Money can be pursued for the sake of security. When times get tough, there are people who turn to their bank accounts or elaborate bunkers they have built for their security. It is only when they have run out of money that they turn their attention to God in prayer. On the other hand, God promises to feed his children when times get tough and not just earthly security, but he promises that you'll be, like I said, eternally secure when you come to faith in Christ. There is now no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. Next, people can turn to money or God for fulfillment and happiness. Since we live in a material world, we must go to work to provide for ourselves. And this is not condemned in scripture. But did you know that you can take it too far by thinking that money will bring you fulfillment? You can chase the almighty dollar thinking, if I had more money, I'd be happy. If I had more stuff, if I had a nicer car, the sad truth is that even if we obtain these things, it won't satisfy us in the way that only God can. God is the true source of joy and fulfillment. There is no greater joy than to know the creator and to be made right with him. Money cannot buy a clean conscience before your creator. And that, my friends, is much more valuable than all the gold in the world. It's important to note that money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money is the root of all evil. There is a big difference there. As I have said earlier, we must make an income as believers, and we trust that God will provide. Even if you have a steady job and begin to think that you are the one providing, God is in control of that job. It is only when you lose that steady job that you realize God was in control all along and providing all along. How can we test ourselves to see if we are serving God or money? And I think that's pretty important. What didn't you say? Here's a few simple questions, four questions, and we can extend it out. Am I in control of money or does my money control me? What am I willing to sacrifice for money versus what God calls me to sacrifice for him? Where do I find my security? Where do I find my joy? If someone would pay me $1,000 every time I share the gospel, would I be more motivated to share the gospel? And that's a pretty convicting one. How are you doing with this? 
I don't expect anyone to be perfect with these questions, and we could all use some work. I also expect that the fourth question would trip up most Christians. If we're honest, I think we would be more motivated if we knew we were getting a paycheck at the end of the week for all the times we evangelized. Also knowing that the crown of rejoicing is given to all those that faithfully bring uh, new believers to Christ. And that's a reward that Christ offers. Remember, Jesus is saying, this is a choice between God and money, not God and Satan. As Christians, we can fall into seasons and patterns where we have pursued money more than God, realistically. And thanks be to God that we are saved by his performance and not ours. All who come to him by faith, he will in no wise cast out. He who has begun a good work will be faithful to bring it to completion. And even when we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself, Ephesians. If this is the character of God, his faithfulness and kindness, his kindness should lead us to repentance. We must change our mind about how we serve him because only he is worthy. My friends, we are all slaves to something. When we come to Christ for our salvation, we become his slave. Christ does something for us when we become his slave, though. He frees us from sin and death. How ironic, a slave master who frees us. One, where once we were a slave to sin, we would do the things that we knew were wrong, but we couldn't resist. We were trapped in that world. But when our new master bought us, he freed us from sin, gave us a new heart that we would now walk in the freedom to do what we wanted. What does the new creature want, I ask? Well, the new creature desires to walk after the spirit. Out of joy for what the master has done for us, we are then sent to tell others of the good news. Remember, friend, we are all slaves, slaves of Christ with the desire for righteousness or slaves of mammon with the desire of sin. One kills, one saves. Who will you serve? What a thrilling portion of scripture. Everything boils down to two choices, two treasures, two visions, and two masters. You can even look at it in reverse. Who you serve will determine your vision. Your vision will determine your treasure. Furthermore, we can conclude that your obedience is directly proportional to your faith. The more your faith in God's word grows, the more your obedience will, will grow. When you find out that the maker of the universe is concerned with what happens to you, you naturally gravitate towards him. The skeptics would say, this is the greatest scam ever. To just blindly trust in a God you've never seen to give you first eternal life as a gift. Whoa, most people stop there. And then treasures on top of that, this is too much. But my friends, I'll give you two reasons why. We have uh, the words and person of Jesus Christ, who was a historical uh, figure, who preached this message, died, and rose again. He is the God-man who walked through the doorway of death and came back to tell us all about it. Friends, I don't just trust anything I hear, but if there are historical facts, evidence, changed lives, and prophecies to back up these claims, well, my policy is to trust anyone that could come back from the dead. It seems like he would know what he's talking about when it comes to the afterlife. 
Next, we have our heart to testify. I know our hearts are evil and deceitful. Who can know it? But God has placed eternity in our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11. All human beings know that there is eternity on the other side of this life. Let the thought of slipping into eternity without knowing Christ grip you with fear. And let that fear drive you to the cross and confess your need for him this morning. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Just know this, God has, past tense, reconciled to himself a people. By his cross, by his forgiveness, we have peace with our master. Our master gives us a new vision, a good eye that looks affectionately towards him. And if saving us from hell is not good enough, he gives us an opportunity for rewards that will last forever. Look, let us look to him, our ultimate treasure. Amen. Uh, let us pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.